How many of you love Jesus today? You love Jesus? All right. Big shout out to all of our locations. If you're worshiping with us, Lakeville or Elk River or Maple Grove or Spring Lake Park, or you're at the lake or wherever it is that you're worshiping with us, it's a great day to love Jesus and dive into his word. As we step into part two of our series, Exodus, The Great Escape, I'm excited today to share with you the message I've entitled, Heart and Hands. I want you to know that you are important and that God created you to benefit the world around you. Do you believe that? You know what? First Peter chapter four, verse 10 says this, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. This is a great verse because it says something about you. Turn to the person next to you and say, he's talking about you. We use this verse and a few of the things I'm going to say today in growth track. How many of you have ever been to growth track? Let me see your hands. All right. Some of this, uh, some of the scriptures I'll cover today are a reminder of something you learn in growth track. But when we talk about the value of who you are, the reality is some of us disqualify ourselves. We say, nah, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to be used of God. I'm okay with maybe receiving his forgiveness but I'm not sure about what I'm going to do next because I'm going to hold back a little bit. But as a disciple of Jesus, you are following in his footsteps. A disciple is a learner under discipline. In other words, if you're following Jesus and Jesus is a leader, guess what you're going to become? A leader. Now, I'm not talking about positional leadership and you're going to have a great title. That's not what Jesus came to the earth to do. He came to serve people. And if you're going to follow Jesus, pretty soon it's not going to be just about you. It's going to be about Jesus and his mission to those that are around you. You are a leader in the making. In fact, repeat this after me. Say, I am a leader in the making. That's what you are. When I was a kid, um, I didn't want to be a leader. In fact, my mom and dad had told me that when they would uh, sing happy birthday to me as a kid, I would hide under the table. I didn't want attention. I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to be noticed. I was afraid of something inside of me. But God changed me over time. And that's the way God works. He, he changes us over time. Sometimes it's all at once, but most of the time it begins with salvation, but there's a long journey of discipleship and transformation that occurs. And for me, I can recall that I was discovering who I was going to be and what God wanted me to do. And each moment, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was like a Toys R Us kid. For those of you that remember the old Toys R Us commercials, I don't want to grow up because if I did, I wouldn't be a Toys R Us kid. Well, I didn't know what I wanted to be, but what I did is just did the next thing. And I said yes to those things that God opened the doors for, for me, and I served. I, I, I went into college, and I started off in business administration, and, and then I volunteered as a youth leader in a local church, and then I transferred to North Central University in downtown Minneapolis, and, and uh, I made a deal with God that, that I could serve God behind the scenes. If it's going to be in the church, it's going to be as a business, business administrator. I don't want to speak. I don't want to leave. I want to be in front of people. How many know you can make a deal with God, but he might not agree to all the particulars, all the fine print that you gave him? He's got his own plan, and that's what happened with me. 
I volunteered in a local youth ministry right here at Emmanuel. And I was just a volunteer, and I interned, and then I, they asked me to lead worship, and then I became an assistant youth pastor, and then one thing led to another. I never tried to get somewhere. I just wanted to be faithful wherever God planted me. I wasn't a leader first. I was a servant first. May I never lose that. Amen? Well, listen, God will use whatever you give him in your today. He will use whatever you give him. Look who God used as leaders in the scripture. Think about it. All the various leaders, the least likely, insecure people, people with problems, people that have issues. Now, I know none of y'all have any issues, but God wants to use you in spite of those things, and sometimes he uses it because the humility that comes out of that is very attractive to God. Now, Moses is an example of a leader that God uses. And last week we looked at chapters one through three of Exodus, and we're going through the book of Exodus uh, throughout this series, and we're gonna look at the stories of Exodus. We're gonna see the various people, and there's something from last week I want you to recall. It's this, two stories are always true at the same time. The first is this, God sees and he knows you. Turn to the person next to you and say, God sees you. <laughs> you're noticed, you're not just a face in the crowd, but God does see you as an individual. And then secondly, God is writing a larger story that includes you. In other words, there's bigger and other things going on in the narrative of the story of the scripture, but there's also bigger things going on in your life. But he includes you in whatever he's doing. And Exodus is a leadership book. God calls Moses out of his own captivity of heart and mind, and then he will lead Israel out of their captivity. Moses had had a terrible perception of himself. If you remember back where we left off last week, we got to the burning bush. God speaks to him. There's this holy moment. And then God says, I want you to go back and rescue the people. But Moses has four excuses. And I'm going to dive into the, his four excuses today. We're going to see out of Exodus. His first one was this. Who am I? Which is insecurities. Anybody here got any insecurities? Exodus chapter three, verse 11. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? He didn't see himself as capable of doing this. Maybe he felt like he disqualified himself from all the things that had occurred up to this moment. Maybe he looked at himself and he's like, there's no way I could ever do something great. I remember when I was in college, my first or second year of college, I went out to visit my relatives in California. And while I was there, um, I was, uh, we ate dinner, and then I went out and played basketball without digesting the food totally, and I passed out while I was playing. And I hit the ground, and when I hit the ground, I didn't have my hands going forward. And so I went face-planted right down, and I smashed the teeth in the front of my mouth and, and uh, really shredded my upper lip. Started coming to, I see pieces of my tooth on the ground and, and, uh, and there's blood everywhere and we got a t-shirt over my mouth. They took me to the hospital. The doctor said, there's no way we can handle this. We got to send you a specialty place. I'm like, oh Lord, help me. And we go to another hospital where they stitched my lip and my upper lip back together again. And, and uh, a couple weeks later, I got the teeth replaced. And I remember the day after everything happened, I looked in the mirror and my face had just 
swelled up and I looked horrible. And at this point, I knew that God was leading me back to North Central um, and I, I knew that I was potentially gonna do ministry. I'm like, well, Lord, I guess that plan is out of the way. I'm not presentable. Um, nobody would ever hire me. I'm not going to be good in front of people. Um, and I had a very big insecurity. In fact, I carried that with me even when I came to Minnesota. And uh, I remember uh, Jody and I were dating, and, uh, and I had a little, like, mustache. And she noticed that every time I would talk, if she was looking at my face, I would cover it, that spot where the scar was. And I think there's a little bit of that in all of us in various ways where we have our thing, whatever that is, where we're like, well, God is calling you to do something and you're like, yeah, but who am I? I can't do that. So that's what Moses did. The second fear that he expresses is what if they, which is a, a, an insecurity of fear. Then insecurity leads to fear. What about them? And what if they see me and they don't accept me? It says in Exodus chapter four, verse one, but Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? And, uh, and of course, in this moment, he's at the burning bush and God is speaking to him and he's worried about going. If I follow you, if I, if I do what you're telling me to do, they aren't gonna listen to me. And he's got a fear of people. Some, are, some people are worried about what people think about us too much. Proverbs 29, 25 says, fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. The fear of people can come upon us and it can stop us from doing what we are meant to do. I used to teach a homiletics or preaching class at North Central University. And, and in my class, one of the things that I would challenge our students to do, because they had a fear of people. It's a natural fear. It's one of the top 10. Fear of public speaking, right? How many, well, I won't even ask for a show of hands because you wouldn't raise your hand if you have the fear of what people think about you, right? <laughs> and I would, I would teach this to people. And, uh, and one of the things that I said is, listen, as a shepherd, and this is unique in the pastoral world, um, if you're going to communicate and you have a fear of people, your burden for people has to be bigger than your fear of what they think about you. So your burden for people needs to be greater than your fear of what they think about you. In other words, that burden has to overwhelm it. Whatever God is telling you to do, it's because it, you're a part of its solution and people need him. And if you have a fear of people in you, you got to get over that. Turn to the person next to you and say, get over it. <laughs> the third excuse that he throws out there is, I never have. I never have, which is inadequacy inadequacy. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, verse 10, Oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. I never have been. In other words, I've never done this, so I can't start. Everything's, there's always a first in something. I ran into a few people this week that have their first child graduate from high school. <sighs> it's both thrilling and oh my goodness. I run into parents that have their first child and it's like, what do we do? They're overwhelmed with everything. 
I remember when Jody and I first had our first couple of sons, like every little time they had a fever or something else, should we take them to the hospital? And there was this big fear of everything else. But by the time we got to kid number three, they basically could have a concussion. And they're like, he'll get over it. So there's a fear of the first. Once you get the thing going, you're going to be all right. Moses also mentions that he stutters. He's tongue-tied. He recites what he could not do. How many of us find ourselves reciting what we can't do and we forget what we can? What are the words coming out of your mouth about yourself? What do you find yourself saying or thinking? I can't do this. And, you know, trauma influences that, what others have done to you. You know, some counselors know that, that the source of, of, of people that have speech impediments at times has, has roots in something else. It could be a, a bad experience or whatever. Because listen, earlier on in Moses' life, he could speak. He was an eloquent com communicator. You find that out in, in Peter's speech in the book of Acts. He, he actually was well-spoken before he murdered somebody. And found himself on the backside of the desert. Somewhere along the way, he lost what he was. The beauty of the gospel is, is that Jesus restores those things which are lost. But we got to face down that fear. The fourth one that Moses expresses is, why don't you use someone else? It's reluctance. Anybody but me. Moses again pleaded in verse 13, Lord, please send anyone else. You believe it, but you're not ready to take the next step. Let somebody else do it. I, I need more time. I need, to, I need to figure things out first. Whatever's standing in your way, take a step beyond, beyond it by faith and step into what God is saying to you. See, God doesn't accept our excuses. And in Moses' case, God doesn't accept his excuses. He's going to keep going. And we need to remember the larger story here. It's not just about what I feel, what I see. There's a bigger story going on. Remember back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and any other ites you can think of now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. So while Moses is going through all of his excuses, God is saying, I see the people. He hears their cries. He's aware of their suffering. And verse 8 says, I have come down to rescue them. And he sends Moses to do it. So while we're dealing with our excuses, remember there's another story involved. People are waiting on you. Someone's life could be changed through your life. And to prepare Moses to kind of take that next step that he's going to have to take, 
Moses had to come out of the wilderness of his own soul, so God is going to help him along. And he starts with what Moses has in his hands at present. Look at chapter four, verse one. But Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appoint, appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw down the staff and it turned into a snake and Moses jumped back and then the Lord told him, reach out and grab its tail. And so Moses reached out and grabbed it and it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform this sign, the Lord told him. And then they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob really has appeared to you. He starts with what's in his hands. I'm sure his staff wasn't exactly like this one. But a shepherd has a staff. It's kind of normal tools. If you're in construction, you've got a tool belt. Uh, if you're uh, working in an office, you've got your computer. Uh, if you're at home and you've got little ones, you've got your wipes <laughs> and a trash can for the diapers. Come on, somebody. It doesn't matter what is in your hand. I love this part of the story because Moses is in a place where he's doing his daily business with small vision about his future. He's probably thinking, I'm going to do the same thing tomorrow as I did yesterday. It's just going to kind of be a cycle of life. But this is when God intervenes Moses and he steps in and he goes, what's in your hand? Use that. And I would just say to you this, for those of you that are under the sound of my voice, whether you're kind of a new believer, you're checking things out, or you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, it doesn't matter where you are at the seasons and the stages of your life, God would stop you and say, what's in your hand? You can recite what you don't have, you can recite your excuses, and God will go, okay, I heard you all your excuses, now I'm going to use you. And I'm going to use you right where you're at. Yes, I'm going to use you, recently divorced person. Yes, I'm going to use you, single parent. Yes, I'm going to use you who just lost your job. Yes, I'm going to use you who once taught Sunday school years ago, but you sat listening to a pastor every week for decades, and it's time for you to get off the bench. Yes, I'm going to use you in this season. Well, you don't understand. I, I've messed up or I've lost something or I'm, I'm kind of bored or I'm not super passionate about God right now. Well, there's a reason you might not be super passionate about God right now because the thing that's in your hand isn't being turned over to God. And God says, throw it down. Take it and say, listen, I'm going to give it up to you. And he might scare you. In Moses' case, it turns into a snake. How many of you would be like, awesome, that's really cool. They'd be like, step back. How many of you would get scared just with a mouse in your house? Right? And then, of course, he tells him to pick it back up. And if he gives God what's in his hands now, God will give it back to him but it will never be the same again. And I would just say to you, give what you are and who you are to God right now. And he'll give it back. 
but you won't be the same again. And of course, there's another miraculous part of the story. He tells him to put his hand in his cloak, and then he pulls it out, and his hand is diseased and leprous, and then God says, put it back in, and then it's healed again. And those two signs he was to use when he went back to Egypt to speak to the Israelite people. He would use that sign over and over and over again. See, God will use your story when you tell his story. He'll use it in other circumstances. Turn to the person next to you and say, what's in your hands? <laughs> now it's time to go. Moses is getting the idea and it's time to go and get moving. He finally says yes to God, and it's time to go. Now, the bigger story moves forward, and God is going to deal with the heart of another person, not just Moses now, but he's going to deal with the heart of Pharaoh. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I've empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. He says in there, I will harden his heart. Speaking of Pharaoh. He's not speaking of mind control. It's an allowance. He's going to allow Pharaoh to be more of what he already is. God's going to allow him to change, but he knows he won't. And Pharaoh's insecurities and his pride and his control hurt everyone. It hurts the Hebrew slaves. But it's not just hurting them, it's hurting his own people. And leaders who harden their heart bring suffering to the people underneath their leadership. Every part of life is like this. Supervisors, teachers, parents, spouses, churches, businesses, government. Bad leaders hurt people. Wars are the result of at least one set of leaders who are intent on hurting the other side. Think about this. There are refugees worldwide escaping tyrannical leaders. This is why I say thank God for kingdom builders and our partners. Because we've got people that are doing relief work around the world to step in. How many know that's the mission of God? Is step into those spaces. Kids who are neglected and raised to hate because their leaders and their parents had hard hearts. I'm contemplating saying something here. This is why, as parents, we need to keep our hearts soft before Jesus. If we don't, we reproduce hardness, and it gets worse in the next generation. That's why we keep coming back to the altar as we grow older. What I mean by the altar is laying our heart before God. My mentor, Dr. Gordon Anderson, used to say that it's virtually impossible for anyone over the age of 40 to change without the altar. May we always be people that keep our hearts soft before God. Amen. 
Now this part of the text shows the end game because Pharaoh will refuse to repent and surrender to Yahweh. What it say in verse 22, then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. He's telling us what's gonna come over the next few chapters. God knows up front. And this language is difficult to swallow through the New Testament eyes where we love each other. How could God allow killing? I don't know. I just know this, God gives people a chance before he gives his judgment. The process of Israel being released from slavery is, is going to end with these verses coming true. God doesn't negotiate with terrorists. In contrast, Moses has the fear of God, overcoming the fear of death. You have Pharaoh one way and you have Moses in another. Moses is surrendering to God's way now. He's obeying God. And by the way, the more you do what God says to you, the more he will speak. The more you do what God says to you, the more he will speak. And the tension that we see between God's plan and Pharaoh's heart results in deliverance. And deliverance is often produced through tension. Lots of tension. It's like a rubber band and opposing forces. I got one hand pulling one way and another pulling another direction. I want you to consider that like a rubber band, the God is pulling on one side and Pharaoh is on the other. And neither one is letting go. And God will use what we call plagues to get Pharaoh to let go. And the tension will release Israel out of Egypt and send them into the wilderness. God's going to take them to that place. And it's ultimately his mercy that allows Pharaoh to repent and re release control before we get to the hardest part. God does that for us. He gives you a chance. How I many you know he gives us second, third, fourth, and fifth chances sometimes? Romans chapter two, verse four. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Don't mistake God's kindness as God overlooking things. He's giving people an opportunity to turn around. How many are thankful that he gave you an opportunity to turn around? And each plague that we're about to see is meant to warn them. It's not the full destruction and damage yet. It's meant to be like a, a, a roadside that says, don't, don't go this way. It's road blocked. And as, as Egypt and Pharaoh run through each of those, those roadblock signs, God sends another one up and another one up and another one. But finally, he said, enough is enough. There is a cliff. Verse five, but because of Romans chapter two, because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. That's the New Testament. The rubber band is going to be released and deliverance is going to come. Israel is going to leave in our story. And the first part of freedom is going to happen. The second part happens out in the wilderness. Because though they got out of Egypt, Egypt needed to get out of Israel. And the tension won't last forever. So as we kind of come to this point of tension, in chapter 7 through 12, we see the plagues. Moses would go and warn Pharaoh of these things. And then he's given an opportunity to repent and release Israel. But his heart grows hardened and harder over time. The first plague is the plague of the blood, where the Nile turns into red. And as he does it, Pharaoh's scientists, his magicians, try to do the same thing and prove they can do it too. I see a lot of that in today's culture, by the way. Attempting to do the same thing that God does through other means. But that's just the first warning sign. Then comes the plague of the frogs. And the frogs are everywhere in the whole land. You open the cupboard, the frog comes out. You get in the car, here comes another bouncing thing. And it's not cute. When they're in your underwear, it's not cute. When they're in your soup, it's not cute. And uh, so Moses goes back to Pharaoh and says, you're going to let us go. And Pharaoh says, yeah, tomorrow. Literally, Pharaoh says, one more night with the frogs. His heart is hard. He's, He's not ready to give into it quick. He's letting everybody else suffer through it. So then God sends the gnats. And uh, some think it's gnats, some think it's lice, there's other things. But gnats are buzzing around, they're in in everything. They're in your ear, they're in your eyes, you take a bite and they're in your throat. Yeah, it had the intended effect right there. And so God's allowing this to happen and Pharaoh still says no. And then come the flies in chapter 8, verse 24. And the flies, I like to think of with the flies, are like Minnesota mosquitoes. They're big, they're everywhere, they're buzzing in your ear, and they're bothering you, and nobody likes them. They're probably transferring disease. Still, Pharaoh's heart grows harder, and then the plague of the epidemic on livestock comes. The cattle, the horses, the sheep, the camels. They all got some kind of disease. And the animals are needed. They're necessary. They're there for transportation. They're there for food. They're there for cultivating the fields. And no longer are they available. And still Pharaoh's heart grows harder. And then the plague of the boils comes. Where humans and animals have them all over. Sores all over their body. And still Pharaoh is willing to let his whole family and everybody around him go through the pain. So God sends hail. And the hail comes, and some scholars think that there's fires breaking out, so that must mean there's lightning 
striking places and starting fires in a dry climate. And, and it's so horrible and it's destroying people. And this is the first time that people are actually dying from the plagues. And there's still a hard heart and the heart of Pharaoh grows harder. And then the locusts come and the locusts come and they eat all the crops and they have no future when the crops are eaten. And still Pharaoh's heart grows harder. And then the plague of darkness comes. In three days of darkness, many scholars think that it was like a dust storm that was unrelenting and it blocked out the sun and nobody could see anything or where they were going. They probably couldn't breathe either. And still Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And then finally, God brings it to the last one that he said from the beginning. And this was the plague upon the firstborn. In Exodus chapter 11 and 12, I want you to know that there is a purpose to all these plagues, a purpose in the pain that Egypt suffered. God wanted them to know that he is the Lord. He wanted everyone to know that he was the one true God, not just the Israelites, but also the Egyptians, because God heart, God's heart beats for everyone. He wanted to know them to know Pharaoh is not God. There is a God above Pharaoh. And with each plague, Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and Moses kept going with what was in his hand. He took the staff back with him, and he reminded the people that God was with them, and there were signs and wonders that accompanied it. In the final plague, God would send an angel to strike down the firstborn of every family in Egypt. But the Israelites were to spread the blood of their best lamb or goat without defect over the doorposts. It's beautifully portrayed in, in The Prince of Egypt, if you've ever seen that movie. And it says in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 12, but the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. And sure enough, when the angel passed over and saw the blood on the door, he showed mercy to the house and passed by. This, my friends, is a preview of what Jesus did for us. If you think about it, Jesus shed blood, spread across our lives, prevents the destruction that we are due, and God protects us. I love how the story of Jesus is woven even into the Old Testament and the powerful story of it. All of Israel from this point forward in Exodus would re remember the Passover with a celebration every single year. It was the Passover celebration. This is when God reminded us, God protected us, and God led us by the blood. And this is exactly what we as a church can do today. We can remember what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross. When he died, he died for you and I. And no matter what fears that you face, no matter what you're worried about, what you're thinking about for the next generation, maybe you're worried about your firstborn son, you're thinking about your kids, you're thinking about what's underneath you, and you're afraid. Listen, you don't need to be afraid. You just need to trust in the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is stronger than any force, supernatural or natural. Jesus paid the price for you and me. Come on, somebody. He did it for you and I. 
We have hope because of Jesus. And of course, in the story, Pharaoh finally lets Israel pack up and go. It hit his own household just as God had told him it would. See, everything starts with God calling out a person in Moses. Moses had to deal with his own excuses and fears. God asked him a question, what is in your hand? What are you going to do with that? And of course, in the bigger picture, God is also working in Pharaoh, giving him a chance, looking for repentance. And in our story, sometimes God's signs and wonders in our life make Pharaoh even angrier. Doesn't like the church, mad at the church, mad of what we believe. As I talked about last week, that's the anti-Semitic spirit that we still see. Why do people hate Jews still? Because the God of the world doesn't like the God of the Jews. If we stay obedient to the voice as Moses did, trust in God, deliverance is coming. Not only for us, but for those that are around us. And today we have an opportunity to look at our hearts as leaders. To surrender to God's way, and it will go well for those who are underneath us. Your purpose cannot wait. Don't push it off till tomorrow. Start with where you are, with what is in your hands, and yield who you are and what you have to the Lord. Would you stand with me today? As we conclude the service today, we're going to worship together in a moment. But let me just say a double dog dare challenge to you to look at your heart. When I look at Pharaoh's story, I go, Lord, don't let me become like him. Help my heart remain soft. You know, when I look at the next generation and kids and, and my kids and now grandkids and the people underneath my leadership. Just because I've seen victories and I've won some wars and I've done some things that are good for the Lord doesn't mean I'm guaranteed to keep a soft heart. I got I to gotta keep my heart on the altar. Lord, keep me surrendered to you. Uh, my mentor, Dr. Gordon Anderson, used to say that it is virtually impossible for anyone over the age of 40 to change without the altar. That's absolutely true. As we grow older and we go through experiences, we can become like Pharaoh. And God will send and allow things to come into our life. Sometimes you're like, why did the car break down? Maybe God is letting you pause and surrender your heart. I'm not just saying the devil makes cars break down, but he does sometimes. And I'm not saying God does. I'm just saying when bad things happen and you're bothered by whatever experiences you've gone through, perhaps God is giving you a chance to repent and keep your heart soft for him. Or you can harden your heart, live your own way, buckle up and show that you're the woman, that you're the man, that you're the one that can do, do this thing. And I would just say this, what if you just pause? You say, I'm sorry, Lord. I want to follow your way. I want to be like Moses. I want to do it his way. I want to overcome my excuses. And if you do, beautiful things can happen, not only for you, but for those that are under you and around you that God has called you to see deliverance come to. How many of you have someone or something in your life that needs deliverance? They need change. Then Moses, take what's in your hand right now and give it to God.
Allow him to lead you. And the tension might be there for a while, but God's not going to let go. And if you persevere, God has a way of pulling you through. We're going to pray, and when we're done, we're going to sing together. Because God, God's bigger than fear. God is bigger than our obstacles. But we need to turn what's in our hand over to him. You take your hands like this right now. Like that's what's in your hand, right? Your life, your relationships, your story right now. Now lift it up to heaven. Can you do that? You're just surrendering it to Jesus. Jesus, we come to you. We surrender to you all our excuses, all the reasons we think you could use somebody else. And we just say, thank you for calling us. We trust you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. We trust in you that you know what's best for us. We ask that you give us faith to believe that when we go talk outside of church, when we go to leading, that you'll be with us, that you'll provide a way, that you'll give favor, that, Lord, you'll open doors, that you'll bring, Lord, deliverance to the world around us, that you'll set the drug addict free, that you'll bring the prodigal son or daughter back to you, that, Lord, you would transform those that are under some form of delusion or they've been tricked by some other friend or, or thought process. And we turn it all over to you. And we ask that you would have your way. We trust in you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us. We pray that you are encouraged and blessed by today's message. Check out emmanuelcc.org for faith resources, how to get plugged into community, or to join us live on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. We are so excited to see what God is going to do. The best is yet to come.